All right, go ahead and open up to John 18. We're going to dive in pretty quick, and I'm going to try to not do what I've done the last... Actually, I thought it was like just the last few weeks, but as I kind of look back, it's been like the last couple months that I've went a lot over, so we're going to try to avoid some of that. I'm not making a promise, but John 18, starting in... We'll be starting in verse 1. So we've been working through the Gospel of John... Um, off and on for, this is our third year, I believe, um, pressing through. And we're a few weeks away from finishing the Gospel of John. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And, and see how God has kind of orchestrated it to where it works perfectly in line with Good Friday and Easter is absolutely phenomenal. Um, don't think that was any creative planning on my part. It certainly was not, because I don't plan that well. Um, it is just simply a work of God in working through His Word. But we're picking up in John 18. Today we're going to be looking at the Sovereign Servant. Now, for the last several chapters, we have seen um, Jesus with His disciples in the upper room. That time in the upper room has now ended. And the moment that really all of history, all of creation had been leading up to is more near than ever. And, and Jesus has now left the upper room, and he's making his final ascent to the cross. Now, a surface reading of the Passion story, um, storytelling of the Passion story will depict Jesus as a man who was a victim. That he was betrayed and ambushed. But that's not quite the real story. See, Jesus, as God, has orchestrated all of life leading to this very moment. The moment that he will take his place as the sovereign servant. Now, the important thing to remember when we say stuff like that, and as we work through a text like this, is that all of history is redemptive history. Everything is pointing towards the cross. Everything is pointing towards Jesus as the sovereign king. And that's our main idea for today, that Jesus, sovereign over all things, becomes a suffering servant to redeem his people. We're going to be in John 18, verses 1 through 32, so we do have quite a bit of ground to cover, and I want to pray for us, and we will dive in. Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us in your word through the work of your Holy Spirit this morning in a way maybe that we've never seen. It's where we just won't hear the details of the story. We won't just be reminded of the happenings around and leading up to the cross, but that we would be moved by the grace that is displayed in the entire working. That our lives would be encouraged by the message of the gospel, that we would be just in awe of the fact that you love us despite us, and that we would be so moved by the, the reading and the preaching of your word, God, that, that the Holy Spirit within us will lead us forward, as your word says, towards love and good works. 
That we wouldn't be simply a people who gather to hear the word, but that as we hear the word, we would be driven outward to take the word to others. As I read this week, Father, that the early church gathered for worship as a time of rest and rejuvenation. From the labors of living on mission. And in response to your goodness, they would gather together and worship and then be sent out once again. May your word accomplish that in us today, Father. That we would realize that the gospel is not only for us. And that you don't simply save us for us. That you save us to be lights, to go out into the darkness and proclaim the truth that Jesus saves. So, Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. That as we work through this text that that leads us towards the cross, God, that we would see Jesus... Arrayed in all of his majesty, in all of his splendor. And that our lives would be radically transformed by you and your word. So today, God, may we see the sovereign servant laying down his life for the redemption of his people. Be with us. In the work and the power of the Holy Spirit today we pray. Amen. As we begin to look into this text, we will start in verse 1 and we will see first the arrest of Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now the interesting thing is... This is following the prayer. So, so Jesus has spent the last couple, well, for us it's chapters. He wasn't writing it in chapters, but for us it's in chapters where he's um, teaching the disciples, he's encouraging the disciples, he's sharing with the disciples that he is about to be leaving. And so he makes them some, a couple promises um, that heaven is theirs and he is going to prepare that place for them. Um, he has given them the promise that the Holy Spirit will come. And then he begins to teach them that, that the world hated me and they hate me now. And because you follow me, they're going to hate you too. And he's preparing them for the work of ministry after he leaves. And he goes into chapter 17 um, after all of that instruction. And he spends time just praying for them. He prays for the Father to glorify his work. He prays for the Father to be with them, to hold them fast, to lead them forward. And now they've left the upper room and they've crossed over uh, the brook Kidron, which is very Very interesting because what it does is it reminds us of King David in 2 Samuel 15. Now, I'm not going to go read 2 Samuel 15, but what it basically the gist is, is David is fleeing his son Absalom. He is fleeing for his life. He is fleeing to preserve his life. He is retreating. And in the very same place, Jesus is not retreating. He's pressing on. In order to give his life to preserve ours. And in this great 
scene, we see Jesus becoming a second and even greater David. That as great as David was as a king and a leader, he doesn't compare to Jesus. David retreated to preserve his life. Jesus presses on. This was his cup. He was not going to let this cup pass. In other words, Jesus had his mission greatly in view. We pick up in verse 2. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas knew the place that they would be going because they went there often to pray to spend time together. And so Judas, working his plan, preparing his ambush, gathers soldiers, gathers uh, people from the high priests. And, and, and here's the deal. The reality is this, that he was preparing an ambush, but the reality is, is that Jesus was actually the one preparing the ambush because he was the sovereign king. And this was all part of his plan to redeem his people. Now, there are a few interesting things that happen here that probably are atypical of what normally would have happened. Again, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often went there, with, met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So Judas had procured this betrayal, he had procured this arrest, and they have prepared it, and they have come into this place, into this garden. Now, it's kind of believed that this garden was either walled off or quite greatly secured. So they would have went in, and it was typical that fugitives would go into this garden at night, and they would hide in the corners or in dark places. So the fact that they grab lanterns and grab weapons is actually not all that uncommon. What is quite uncommon is the arrest itself, right? So typically, again, fugitives would go into these corners, these troops would come in, and they would search for these fugitives, and they would typically bring several guards, several soldiers with them, because the most often response is that these fugitives, when they were attempted to be arrested, would fight back and riot against those trying to arrest them. And in what seems to be some quite prophetic manner, as they shine forth the lights looking for Jesus, Jesus steps into the light, and as he speaks, it's almost as he's making this pronouncement that he, the true light has come, reminds us of John 8, right? That we studied weeks ago, months ago. For Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so unlike the typical fugitive who hides, Jesus steps into the light. 
And as he steps into the light, he responds to the questions of who he is and who they are searching for with the words, I am. And as he proclaims that he is who they were searching for, again, the significance of the I am statement is quite profound. John uses that several times in the gospel, but he does so to point back to what we see Excuse me. in the Old Testament where God declares that I am who I am. And Jesus repeats that in order to show that he is God in the flesh. And as he makes that proclamation in this garden, all of those mighty guards and soldiers were put back and laid out. In other words, they were completely powerless. All of their training, all of their preparation, all of their weapons, all of their armor was absolutely powerless at simply the name of Jesus. There is no other name greater. We will go through many trials and many temptations and many dangers in life, and none of them compare to the name of Jesus. But what we see in the verses following is that instead of fighting or resisting arrest, Jesus willingly surrenders himself. Now, and this is a common occurrence, right? Peter, not fully understanding the scope of what's taking place, fights back. Now, I am just as guilty as the next person of constantly looking at Peter and be like, you imbecile, right? But let's be fair for a moment. What Peter is really doing, he's just protecting and and he's fighting for his Lord. He doesn't understand what's about to take place fully, right? Even though Jesus had told him, nobody understood. Nobody would have known exactly what was going to transpire. They would have known what was going to happen, but they wouldn't have felt the gravity and the weight of what was going to happen, right? And so in order to protect his Lord, Peter pulls out this sword and he hacks off the ear of Malchus, one of the servants, one of the soldiers. What's Jesus do? Luke tells us that Jesus picks the man's ear up and out of compassion attaches it back. Now again, I want you to just think about this, right? Think of how the, the whole situation, how odd it really is. That Jesus, the only truly innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth, is being hunted as a fugitive. And, he, and it's not just that there's one or two soldiers, right? Because some of the original language, like, there could have been a lot of these men with them. For a couple reasons. One, just the name of Jesus was quite popular. And they could have greatly feared riot that his followers would surround and fight. But instead of hiding and instead of running, Jesus steps into the light. And he pronounces, I'm the one you're looking for. He's not hiding, he's not retreating, he's not running, he presents himself. And he willingly surrenders himself to be arrested, and when he does, one of his followers fighting back because he doesn't want this to happen, but Jesus stops him and he, and he makes that to cease. And in this really odd moment, Jesus shows compassion to them. Now, I highly doubt any of us would respond in that way. Let's say you're at home this afternoon and you're just kind of resting and relaxing and you're getting ready to come back to community groups, shameless plug. And all of a sudden, 
The Bacon County police and sheriffs, they come bashing your door down and slam you to the floor, accusing you of crimes you had not committed. How would you respond? Would you just simply say, here I am, take me? Absolutely not. And yet Jesus, being surrounded by these men, does exactly that. He willingly surrenders. And again, it would appear that Jesus is some great victim here, but he's certainly not. He's the sovereign king of the universe. He has orchestrated all of these things to happen, and all of these things are transpiring according to his gracious and sovereign will. And this was God's plan from the very beginning. Remember, Isaiah said it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Psalm 22 is a direct set of instructions and clarifying statements revealing the true nature of the cross. Crucifixion had not even been invented yet. It was God's plan all along for Jesus to come as the Redeemer for His people. So in realizing that God is sovereignly reigning over all things, why wouldn't we trust Him? It's easy to make excuses, isn't it? I do it every day. God, I know you might want me to talk to this person, but I've got so much going on. God, I know you want me to serve here, but it just doesn't really fit my gifts. It's kind of uncomfortable. God, I know I should be having these people in my home, but this is our safe place. God, I know, but, but, but. You know, we are good at and probably known for proclaiming that God is sovereign over all things. But it's one thing to say that God is sovereign. It's another thing to believe. Because if we truly believe that God is sovereign, I think our lives would look radically different. If we truly believe that our purpose on this planet was to proclaim the goodness of Jesus, first and foremost, I think our lives would look different. And so what I want us to do as we're working through the Word and as we're spending time seeking the face of God is ask ourselves, am I truly trusting Him? Do I trust Him with my life? Do I trust Him with my family? Do I trust Him with my career? Do I trust Him with the everyday? It's because I think we have this tendency to, to think of church in quite wrong terms. right? To think about our Christian life in quite wrong terms. We look forward to Sunday to gather and sing some songs and, and hear some preaching and you know, kind of get a proverbial slap on the back and let's go out and do it again. But what do we do the rest of the week? Are we living in the presence of God daily? Do we truly believe that the God of all creation has given His Spirit to live within us if we've trusted Him and we surrendered our lives to Him? 
Are we living on mission? Are we living to reflect the glory of God? Jesus willingly gave himself, knowing the cost, but knowing the reward was much greater. Have we trusted in Christ enough to where we could willingly lay ourselves down? Now, following the arrest of Jesus, he goes on trial. Now, remember, the Gospel of John is not meant to be like some history book type text. Remember, the purpose of the Gospel of John, he, he tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, is so that you may believe, right? If we want all the details, we go to Luke. Luke gives us all the details, right? Luke, Luke is a historian, um, and he breaks down all the details. John is, is giving us glimpses to show us the majesty of the work of God in Jesus so that we would believe. And so when Jesus is arrested and he begins to go on trial, there's something interesting again that is taking place. Look at verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Upon Jesus' arrest, he's brought in and taken before Annas and then to Caiaphas. And what we see here is that these men, and not just here but in other places, these men have been plotting the death of Jesus for a while. This isn't new. This is the culmination of a lot of work. They had been preparing for this moment for some time. They have wanted Jesus dead for a long, long time. Now, isn't it interesting to think that in the evil plotting of men, God's plans are still fulfilled? That in God's working, He would use evil people. See, God, remember, is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is working all things together, including evil men to accomplish his purposes. And that might seem odd, but there's no denying that God is sovereign over all creation. There's no denying that he has used evil people and evil purposes throughout history to accomplish his work. Probably the easiest example to think of is Joseph. Joseph, born the baby boy to many brothers, many siblings, beloved by his father, hated by his brothers because he was beloved by his fathers. They were overtaken in jealousy and in rage and plotted to have him dealt with. They take his coat, they shred it, and they cover it in blood. They hide him and throw him in a pit, and they tell the father that he had been mauled by a wild beast. All the while, they sell their brother off into slavery. It's just pure evil. But God, in his sovereign plan, moved Joseph, and, and this just doesn't happen, took Joseph from being a slave to a prince among a people that were not his people. 
Why? To display his glorious works. Because, uh, as you know the story, Joseph would eventually be a somewhat precursor of Christ and be a savior to the people because of his position. And he himself even told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And all throughout history, we see harsh, vile things that happen that pave the way for God's purposes to be fulfilled. We live in a sin-stained, a sin-marred, broken world. But the truth of the matter is, is that God was, God is, and God always will be in control. And we want to question that. And we want to, to try to thwart him off of his throne, but he will not be moved. And all throughout the Gospel of John, we have seen God preparing them for this purpose. His teaching, paving the way, preparing them so that they and we might believe. The trial picks up in verse 19, and we see the high priest then question Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I have said to them. They know what I have said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So as the trial picks up, we see that Jesus is being interrogated by Annas. Now, this is just a little side note for you. There's a lot of debate on who actually was the most powerful here, Annas or Caiaphas. To be real, it doesn't quite matter. One of these men was the current high priest, and the other one had been a high priest. That's pretty much what history says. And they're questioning Jesus. They're interrogating Jesus. and, And the gist of their interrogation rests on two primary questions. The first set of questions are about his disciples. What they're really trying to get at is how big of a following does this Jesus actually have? In other words, they're trying to preserve themselves a lot of trouble by figuring out how many people are going to have an uprising if we go through with this. If we put this man to death, if we fight against these people, how are they going to revolt? So in other words, it's some type of self-preservation. But the second question is more of a theological question. They're wanting to know about Jesus' claims as Messiah. Because again, Jesus doesn't quite fit the mold of Messiah that they had planned out in their mind. Even though they knew the Old Testament scripture. Now these were the high priests. They would have known this scripture better than anyone else. And they still denied that Jesus was the Messiah because they interpreted the scripture to mean what they wanted, to, wanted it to mean. They didn't want a suffering servant. They wanted a military power who would come in, take his throne, and overrule all of the nations of the earth and take his place as king of all kings. Now, isn't that exactly what he does? He just doesn't fit the mold that they wanted him to fit. 
And so they question. And they interrogate. And as Jesus answers them in his wisdom, anger ensues. And one of the underservants of the high priest gets extremely angry and he actually strikes Jesus. And as Jesus continues to answer in his wisdom, they continue to get more and more and more frustrated and to the point where Anna sends Jesus away to Caiaphas. Now, John doesn't tell us anything about the conversation between Jesus and Caiaphas. And the trial then moves on to Pilate, verses 28 through 32. And then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So as the trial moves to Pilate, we begin to ask some questions. Why? Why would it go to Pilate? Because the high priest had the authority to govern under their law. So why do they send him to Pilate, who is one of the Roman governors? Because they didn't want to do anything in accordance to Jesus or with Jesus for a few reasons. One of them is they didn't want the pushback. They didn't want to have to deal with the people rioting. But the second and primary reason is this. They wanted to remain pure so that they could enjoy and eat the Passover. Now, how ironic is that? They didn't want to put a man to death so that they could eat the Passover, yet they're the ones who schemed the death of Jesus. Now, again, it's easy to look at how evil and how vile of an action this is from them and not relate it to our own lives. How often do we uphold our religion to the point that we overlook our sin? Because what we see with them is that they were willing to overlook their sin to maintain their religion. Or their religious appearance. They wanted to continue to look holy even though they were not holy. They wanted people to think that they were doing righteous even though they were doing evil things. In other words, they were justifying their own sin on the basis of their own merit in order to keep the appearance of them looking holy instead of actually trusting in the only real hope they had of being cleansed from sin. They were so bound to their sacrifices, their rituals, that they completely ignored the one who came to fulfill all of those. They wanted to continue sacrificing a Passover lamb so that they could have their atonement for sin. When the true Passover lamb is standing right before them and they're about to put him to death so he will truly atone for the sins of his people. 
how often do we do the very same thing? Do we justify our own sin? We say the right things. We, we do the right things so that as some self-preservation means, we try to save ourselves instead of surrendering, surrendering ourselves to the only one who can actually save us. Now, that sounds kind of ludicrous to us, and we say, absolutely not. We don't do that. We love the Lord. We serve the Lord. We're here, aren't we? Absolutely. But here's the thing that I think we need to see. If we're not living on mission, if we're not giving, giving everything we have to proclaim the good news, are we truly surrendered to Jesus? There's an interesting thing that happens in Scripture. Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, goes into the temple. And he was respected as a teacher, for a season at least. And he comes in, and, and typically um, someone who was qualified or seen as qualified could do the Scripture reading and the teaching for that day. And Jesus comes in, and he takes his place, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah... And he opens it up, and he reads the, port, the part where he says, basically, that the Messiah will come, and that he will come to proclaim good news to the poor, that he will set the captives free, and he will give sight to the blind. It's a rough paraphrase. And Jesus rolls the scroll back up, and he gives it to them. And then he says, today this is fulfilled. What's fulfilled? That God has come in the flesh to do what? To proclaim the good news. And Jesus has set us apart to do likewise. To proclaim the good news. To preach the gospel. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir and I'm saying this to myself as well. We get comfortable in our Christian circles. We get comfortable in our church family. And we forget that we have been set apart for the mission of God. And we rally our week around whatever we want to rally it around so that on Sunday, as long as the situation is okay, we can come and we can sing a few songs and we can hear a sermon and we can love on our brothers and our sisters and we can see a bunch of happy babies running around and we can give a little and we can serve a little and we can go on about the rest of the week living it however we choose to live it. But the gospel demands so much more. It demands so much more because we have been called to live on mission for the glory of God. Again, Ephesians 2, right? For by grace you have been saved, not of yourselves. It is, if, it is a gift of God so that none of us may boast. Why are we saved? To be his workmanship. To do the works that he has set apart beforehand. And, and what we have to understand is that hearing the word of God and reading the word of God is of no value if it doesn't take root in us and send us on to proclaim this good news to others. Why did Jesus die? To save his people from their sin. And by God's grace, He chooses us to do the same thing. 
Last week, we made mention that Christ, in his work and in the giving of the Holy Spirit, he prays this in the, in the high priestly prayer, or we see it in the high priestly prayer, that the Holy Spirit will come, that he will indwell believers, and he begins to build his church in Acts and moving forward, and it begins to spread like wildfire. And one of the comments made was this, that Jesus is still building his church. And he's doing it through the work and the obedience and the lives of his redeemed people. The question in return, in response to that, is what are we doing? This is for all of us. Are we shackled as slaves to Christ? Now see, we think of that as such a derogatory thing. That we would be slaves, doulos, bondservants of Christ. And we think that being shackled to Christ means no more freedom. But the only true freedom we find is in realizing that our standing before God rests solely on the righteousness of Jesus. God has saved us for Him. And He has already prepared our works before us. And He's simply asking us, are you willing to believe me in faith? Are you willing to trust in me in faith? Are you willing to live for me in faith? And he gives us the greatest example of all in the Son of God. See, ultimately Jesus was put on trial for crimes he didn't commit by people who were blind to the truth. And the good news of Scripture is that when we surrender to Christ, we know the truth and the truth will set us free. Set us free for what? For the mission of God. For the glory of God. But during the trial of Jesus, there's something else taking place. See, after the arrest of Jesus and, and while the trial is happening, simultaneously Peter is doing Peter's thing. What is that thing? It's the denial. Look at verse 15 and following. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did other Another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So after Jesus is arrested and he's in the midst of his trial, we follow the path of two disciples who enter into the courtyard of the high priest. One known to the high priest, it just simply says the other disciple. Um, it's actually quite believe that this is the one we call beloved, um, which is actually John who's writing this. And because he was a, an associate, I guess, or a friend or known by the high priest, he was able to enter into the court, a, a more secretive place. But Peter was not, so Peter was left outside. But on the 
work of John, Peter's able to come in the door. And as he's coming in the door, he's questioned by the servant girl. Aren't you also one of the disciples? No. Now, I think we need to point this out. Because again, it's easy for us to question sometimes that God is sovereignly working this all to to come to pass. But if you remember in John 13, Jesus tells Peter that, like, Peter, you say that you want to give everything for me and you say you want to live for me, but guess what? You're going to deny me. Of all the ones, you're going to be the one to deny me. No, I won't. You will. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And as Peter's walking in the gate, denial one. He denies Jesus. And then it skips on down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter, who was standing and warming himself by the fire, so that they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. Denial number two. Verse 26. So one of the servants, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus, asked him, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. Denial three, and at once the rooster crows. Now, Peter's denial is absolutely gut-wrenching. Peter's not just some random follower of Jesus. He's kind of the voice of Jesus' followers. About as close of a disciple as a disciple can get. He's been with Jesus through everything. He's heard the plans of Jesus. He's seen the works of Jesus. He's spent personal, intimate time with Jesus and Jesus teaching, and Jesus praying. And he's been prayed over by Jesus. And what Jesus told him what happened, has happened. The question is, is why in the world would Peter, of all people, deny Jesus? Peter was the one who just hacked off a man's ear in order to try to preserve Jesus. And now in the midst of this courtyard, he's saying, I don't know him. Because in that moment, Peter had lost sight of God's sovereignty. And he feared for his own life rather than trusting Jesus. Now, do you see how quickly this happens? Just a few hours earlier, Peter is fighting for Jesus. And, and we try to look at ourselves and say, man, that stuff won't happen to me. See how quickly the tides can turn? You see why it's so important to be in constant, intimate fellowship with Christ? And living by the leading of the Holy Spirit and not under our own power? See, in the face of adversity, Peter denies Jesus. Most of you will remember years ago at Columbine, 
the story of the young lady who, with a gun to her head, was asked, do you follow Jesus? Are you a Christian? And her, knowing that if she said yes, the trigger would be pulled, says yes. And I just wonder, I mean, you know, we live in such a time where we have so many freedoms as Americans. Like, we gathered here for worship with no fear, really, of being arrested or being persecuted. And now, those freedoms are quickly fading. If someone walked through the doors right now and put a gun to our heads and asked, are we followers of Jesus? What would we say? And don't respond quickly by saying, of course we'd say yes. I want you to think about it. Because you know what's going to happen in that moment? The temptation of, I might not get to see my spouse again. At least not until we're reunited in heaven. I might not get to see my kids grow up. I might not get to walk my little baby girls down the aisle. I might not get to see them graduate and do whatever they're going to do with their lives. I might not ever get to achieve all the things I dreamed of achieving. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I just said no this one time. Now, I think we all would want to say we would declare yes quickly. But would we? I mean, isn't this a picture of American Christianity? Where we pledge our love and allegiance to Jesus, but then we deny him when he calls us? How often, again, has Jesus called us to do something and we just say, hmm, pump the brakes on that a little bit? Not right now. I, I don't like to use illustrations, and I said this a few weeks ago, of my children um, I think that just becomes quite too commonplace with pastors where they paint their children out to be these like little evil people um, but as parents you'll be able to relate with this there are times when I tell my girls don't do that or I need you to do this and the response is often in a minute or let me finish what I'm doing. And a friend of mine said the other day, slow obedience is no obedience. I just thought that was a clever line. But isn't that a picture of what our relationship with Christ as American Christians looks like? Not quite. Let me, let me do this first. Well, let me finish what I'm doing and, and then maybe I'll consider it. Let me get my stuff together, Jesus. Then I'll go there or do that. You give me a raise and then I'll have people in my home more. You, you take away this like anxiety that I deal with and, and then I'll, I'll do the thing you've called me to do. You take away this obstacle and then. Do you remember? When God called Moses, Moses was like, not so fast. I don't speak well. Did Jesus use Mo- did God use Moses? 
Absolutely. The problem is, is that far too often we're okay following Jesus until it gets real. And we live in a place where it's easy to follow Jesus. In fact, it's encouraged and accepted. Until it gets real. So church, I want to remind us all who we're following. We're following Jesus, the sovereign king of all things. It takes a lot of guile to, I'll give you an example, a hypothetical example. Say you work for, let's just say you're in the military. And say you're ranking officer tells you, I want you to do this. Are you going to look at him and say, no? You might, but it's not going to go well, is it, Kevin? Yet we do that with Christ every day. Every day. When it starts getting real, we back up. quickly flip over to Romans chapter 1. I've done it again. Told you I wasn't making a promise. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 16. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There is no excuse. For although they knew God, listen to this, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Psalm says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to, a dishonorable, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are, not, that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 24. 
Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen to this. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does your life reflect absolute trust in the sovereign king of the universe? Or have you exchanged the truth of God for a lie? Are we denying Christ as Peter did every moment of every day? I've been pondering a lot lately on... The direction of our church. The gospel is at the forefront. We have made it our aim to make sure the gospel is in the front. That it steers what we do, what we sing, what we preach, how we live. But there just seems to be something missing. And I've pleaded with God on why. What is it? And I've been reading a book and I'm about done with it called The Gospel Driven Church. And I'm reading it and I'm like, we hit the nail on the head on all of these categories. Like the answer to problems that really we face of like not growth and all of these things. He's saying, put the gospel first, sing the gospel, preach the gospel, pray the gospel. And I'm just like, wait, where's, can, can you write an addendum to this book that says, okay, but what if you're doing all these things and none of this is happening? And really here's where I'm, where I'm kind of landing as I'm, as I'm navigating towards the end of this book. We have put the gospel at the forefront. But it has yet to take root in our lives. Mine included. To the point where I realize that everything in me should be given for the glory of God. My time, my talent, my treasures. My families, my job, my very life, my comforts. And I begin to think, you know, there's this old saying that as goes the leader, so goes the people. And Allison, ladies, you especially know this, is reading a book about gospel-centered hospitality. And how often these two books that we're reading are, are just hitting each other right square on the head. 
And it asks this question, are we to the point where the gospel has so changed us that we're willing to ask others, do they see the gospel in us? And so what I'm confessing to you now is that I am not living the gospel mission the way that scripture declares. And I want to confess and repent that. And I want to encourage us to stare the mission of God face to face and run headlong towards it. And I don't want you to hear this and think we've got to follow all these rules and do all of these things because here's the deal. That is, Peter has denied Christ. We deny Christ every day. Every day. But His mercy is more. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny Him. He told him He would. Who is it that God used to bring revival to his church? Peter. God saved him despite him. And he extends that same grace to us every day. Grace upon grace. And Jesus, as the sovereign creator, sustainer of all things, becomes a sovereign servant. In order to purchase redemption for his people, for you and me. And we don't surrender to Jesus in order to receive goods, or we don't follow Jesus in hopes that we will be reconciled. No. Because Jesus, in his death, has secured salvation for his people, and he offers the beautiful gift of grace to those who will trust him. That's why we surrender to Him. That's why we trust Him, because He is worthy. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our praise, and He is worthy of our mission. Will you trust Him today? Let's pray. Our Father, may the gospel root deeply within us so that we not say we love Jesus, but it would be quite obvious in the way we live our lives. Not living our lives to achieve salvation, but because it has already been secured in the death and resurrection of King Jesus. That we may live to the praise of His glorious grace. So God, if there is anyone here today who has never truly surrendered their lives to You for salvation, call them to Yourself. And for the rest of us, forgive us where we fail and encourage us to move forward, living in grace for the glory of your name and for the good of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.